Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Deirdre Enright, who is the Director of Investigation at the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia. The website is innocenceprojectuva.org, innocenceprojectuva.org. Deirdre Enright, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. I uh, attended a great event uh, that your uh, organization was part of at the UVA Law School last week uh, with five people uh, on the stage who had been exonerated. Um, And I, I was very interested to learn that your Innocence Project, unlike some others, doesn't look just at DNA cases, looks at all kinds of different cases. How... How, how do you prove innocence? Because everybody has been so overwhelmed by the power of the DNA information to reverse their conclusions of, based on everything else. And you're freeing people without DNA. How does that work? You know, so when, when I was first considering uh, starting our project here at UVA, um, you know, there was one of the first answers you have to come up with is whether you're going to be a DNA project or a non-DNA project. And although I think uh, Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck did an amazing thing in starting the New York Innocence Project using only DNA cases, um, uh, and that was really brilliant because it's so conclusive um, that there wasn't going to be any question in a, in almost all the cases that someone was innocent or guilty, right? There was just going to either be uh, point to someone else or point away from the convicted. But in truth, when you look at the numbers, there's DNA in only, I think it's 12% of all criminal convictions. And if the error rate is what we suspect it is across the board, and there's no reason to think it, it's not. Um, it didn't seem. It seemed to me the natural next step is to look into all criminal convictions and not just DNA convictions, um, just basically because of the fairness issue. Um, but then the other part of it is that for students, for law students, um, just looking for physical evidence and testing it is um, not as instructional as looking into all types of criminal cases and investigating all um, different issues. So, you know, our clinic gets, we have shaken baby cases, homicide, rape, <laughs> uh, arson. They get, to, they get to revisit all of these kinds of cases and take them apart. And that's a far broader learning experience for them, I think. Yeah, so this is partly freeing innocent prisoners and partly educating uh, future lawyers. Um, right, what, right. What, uh, when you say if the error rate is what we think it is, what do you think it is? Well, of course, because we don't routinely look back at cases. So once you've had a trial and a direct appeal, that is sort of the end of what the state owes you in terms of legal representation. So the only people who get their cases looked at after that are people who still have some money left to hire a lawyer or people who are on death row who get uh, mandatory uh, lawyers because they're under a death sentence, and then the Innocence Project people. So... The the statistic the uh, the only real statistic that I know about um, 
Well, maybe I should say there's two. So there's people who say they think the error rate is between 2 and 11%, somewhere in there, based on, you know, several, much more anecdotal than scientific studies. Right. Um, and then I think I've read uh, that Peter Newfeld and Barry Sheck have come up with a, a statistic in DNA cases that of the people who apply to them for assistance, and then of the people for whom there is physical evidence to test, and they test it and get a result, that 45% of those people uh, get good results, get exculpatory results. Now, you know, that's sort of, (laughs) that's a tiny divided by tiny divided by tiny number of cases, right? Yeah. Um, But it's it's terrifying, right, to think about the fact that... um, even if the, I think somebody said, even if the error rate is only one percent, it still means that there's probably about forty-five thousand innocent people in prisons in our country. Yeah, I, I had somewhere seen six percent in a study and figured that meant uh, well over a hundred thousand uh, right. innocent people. Um, yeah, I mean the numbers, and and the terrifying thing is that we don't know the answer, right? We 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 are all just guessing. Um, because we don't keep statistics, which um, people like to say that if there were this many plane crashes, you know, you wouldn't get on a plane. Um, and at the very least, there would be studies, you know. Yeah. But we, we don't study, and no one keeps the numbers, and, you know, we're all trying and trying to envision ways that you could do that. Um, and law students and law schools seem to be an ideal place to start, Um because, but you know, then then you become: Are we going to be the kind of clinic that does more research and less actual work? You know, actually exonerating people. Because every minute we decide to do something else, we're not representing somebody. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, novelist John Grisham who was uh, one of the MCs of this event you had last week, who commented that it was a a question of money. That the more money that comes into these innocence projects, the more innocent people will be freed. I, I assume there's a, an enormous need that is not being met. Uh, I don't know if you can estimate uh, you know, what well, percentage so of the yes, need. Yes, of course. And I mean, I also remember people telling me when I started this, and, you know, we had to, once we had our clinic, had our 12 students, um, uh, it, we had to begin finding cases. And so I had to go to other innocence projects just to have a, a couple of cases to start with. And the other directors of other projects were laughing because they were saying that this would be the only time in my life that I'd ever be looking for a case. Right. And um, they they were that was certainly an understatement because there's just no shortage. Um, and so, and the wonderful thing that we have here at, at UVA is that in addition to having a backlog of over 600 cases, we also have more students than we can possibly use, given that there's just two directors. So what we're raising money for is um, more private investigators to pay private investigators to go with the students when they go to investigate, because the two of us can't always go, and to hire two more fellows. We would love to have two fellows to work with us, because we would be able to have more students and more cases. And it's such a shame to have people, students who want to work and cases available, and all we need is more staff attorneys. 
Yeah, so check that out at innocenceprojectuva.org if you can help. Uh, give us give us an example or two of, of non-DNA cases and how somebody uh, has been exonerated. Um, well, and it, it, it might be even better to tell you about a case that we just literally have just filed, right? Sure. So we have a client, uh, Messiah Johnson, and he's out of Norfolk, Virginia, and he was accused of committing an armed robbery of a beauty salon over 20 years ago. And um, he maintained his innocence at the time and ever since. And, uh, he, and if somebody had paid attention to him and to just the circumstances of his life, they would have known that he wasn't an armed robber, right? Because he had a job, a family, money. You know, he there, there was no reason for him to rob a beauty salon, and he was never found with the proceeds of the beauty salon. No one said he had a gun, although the two people that robbed the place had guns. Um, and they wore disguises. The people who robbed the beauty salon wore disguises. So when two weeks later one of the victims uh, saw him walking into a club where he was going for a drink with a friend, the idea that that person could identify Messiah um, is, is pretty preposterous. And then they did, um, the police did very unfortunate show-ups, brought the victims together to look at him sitting handcuffed on the curb. Um, Of course, they said they could identify him. Um, And it was just, his trial was a disaster. There was a mistrial the first time. The second trial ended up with a conviction. The jury asked the Commonwealth which of the two robbers Messiah was. And the Commonwealth, the judge, of course, said he couldn't answer that question. And they found him guilty of being both robbers. <laughs> and he was sentenced to 132 years for an armed robbery that um, where no one got hurt. And um, now here we are 22 years later. We were able to identify the person from newspapers and from Freedom of Information Act uh, requests. We were able to identify the actual robber. And he signed an affidavit saying that he did it. <laughs> Um, so we are in um, court right now um, waiting to see what the circuit court is going to do with that new information. Um, but, you know, as always in most of our cases, the information that we dig up all these decades later could have probably, you know, could and should have been discovered back in the day. And there should never have been a trial. How It's wonderful work. Can you explain just a little bit how, through newspapers, you could identify the, the actual <laughs> robbers? Um, so what we did was um, dig up. We filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the local newspaper, with the Virginia Pilot, and discovered that there was um, they were looking for uh, two between two and five people who were committing armed robberies right around this time in this neighborhood wearing disguises. And um, then we looked, then we did these criminal incident reports trying to see which places were robbed, and we sort of put them, we mapped them out and figured out that, you know, in all likelihood, the 18 uh, armed robberies were being committed by the same group of people. Um, and then we just searched um, on the Virginia Inmate Locator and found out that the person that they thought was the primary person involved was um, in prison, and in prison for a good long time. They, and they being the newspaper or the police or 
Yeah, well, so the police and the the police must have told the newspapers who these people were, and they had printed that because they were looking for them. Uh, so we, I literally took a student on a Saturday afternoon to a prison and um, found this man, and we told him what you know what we thought, and he he immediately said, "Oh yeah, you know that was me." <laughs> wow. Uh, we're speaking with Deirdre Enright, who is the Director of Investigation at the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia. Um, it, it seems like one of the problems is this assumption of guilt, as well as this misunderstanding of how accurate uh, it, it is to ID someone, uh, even on, in the mind of the person making the identification, so that uh, when someone is seen in handcuffs uh, and the police say, this might be the person, uh, there's this tendency to say, yep, and then for the police and the lawyers and the prosecutors and the judges to, to simply assume guilt rather than presume innocence. Um, has, have there been any, any positive changes uh, in the years that these innocence projects have been operating in terms of, of public attitudes or understanding or, or systemic reforms? So I think that it's uh, pretty clear that the added, that public attitudes are changing quite a bit. I mean, you saw the number of people at the uh, at our event last week. That was that was uh, that was heartening to me to see the community out and listening and and hearing what people uh, what's going on. There isn't <laughs> there isn't an, as much reform uh, as you would like or hope. Um, so we do do um, eyewitness identifications slightly differently, right? We do, um, we now encourage people to, instead of doing a photo, um, doing a mug shot, you know, six lineup, we encourage police to do them one by one, uh, photos do one by one, because when people look at six photos, they tend to choose between them looking for someone who looks the most like the person they saw, right. which isn't the same as saying yes or no to a person. Um, each time, but that said, um, we just worked on a case. We're working on a case right now um, where uh, another bank robbery, um, where the two the people picked our client out of um, a systemic lineup, so they were shown one by one, and it you know he's just a man who looks a lot like the person who did the armed robbery, but. Um, uh, it, it's clear to me from the preliminary hearing and from looking at the lineup pictures that each time people were shown the photos or shown the person, they become more confident, right? And so by the time they get to trial, uh, they have a very strong and false confidence about their identification. And it is just impossible to convince a jury that people, especially people who are victims, are wrong. Right, yeah. that they just um, they had this traumatic experience, but they're wrong. Um, so the identifications are just really, really convincing. Um, and you know, we would we would say that you can't do a show up the way that it was done in Messiah's case. That you can't bring victims to a place at, where a person is handcuffed and sitting on the curb when when you could actually do a lineup or do a photo lineup instead. Um, and that was that was on the lawyer in this case. He could have tried to suppress that, but he did not. Um, the problem really is that there's so many ways 
something, a trial can go wrong. And it looks like in our cases, most of our cases, it wasn't just one thing. It was lots of things. And um, what passes for due process, um, according to our, our own laws and case law, it is really process. <laughs> yeah. It's not really due process, it's process. And um, once the machine starts moving, it goes in one direction. And, and it seems pretty clear to me, tell me if I'm wrong, that it's, that it's not just a question of having uh, the system set up in misguided ways so that everybody means well, but things get off track. Uh, you know, more than one of the people you had at the event, uh, part of how they had been convicted had been with jailhouse snitches, you know, right. put intentionally in a cell with someone who was going to lie about them and what they had told them in that cell in order to themselves get free. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we have quack doctors, uh, we have uh, lying police officers, we have complicit judges, we have lawyers who don't bother because they assume guilt. Uh, I, I mean, it seems like the the process that's rather unique to this country, as far as I know, of electing prosecutors and then expecting right. those prosecutors to get convictions, no matter of whom, uh, you know, creates a motivation for conviction that drives a lot of this so that it's there's actually evil intentions here not just um, misguided systems am, am i am i right in that yeah and 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 in addition to all of what you just said there's very little in the way of repercussions um for people who behave badly um so you see bad cops get promoted and get kept and you see prosecutors move up when, you know, you just don't see anyone. I mean, when the judge in Texas went to jail for 10 days, uh, people were in our, people in the Innocence Project community were sort of celebrating that something had finally happened. Right. But, you know, jail for 10 days, really, <laughs> that, um, I don't know that that's going to do it for anyone else. It- it seems like there was a big push years ago in Virginia for reforms around allowing evidence in past a certain date. I mean, I think it was like 21 days. Was yes, a we have the infamous 21-day rule. It, it, um, and that's which, not been reformed yet? No, and it, it, I mean, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of ludicrous on its face that you would um, make such a rule, right, that that any evidence that you discover more than 21 days after your conviction becomes final, you cannot get in. Um, you can't reopen the case, um, which doesn't mean you can't try to put in new evidence through other mechanisms. But um, the idea that anyone is going to discover any new evidence between their conviction and 21 days later Right? That's not exactly the hot time for looking for new evidence for your case. Um, but anyhow, um, but Virginia has that, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a national joke. People, if you go to conferences, uh, it's the thing that other lawyers know about us. Yeah. Um, because it's so absurd. Other, other um, than paying very little to defense attorneys who are... Right. Yeah. We also are in the bottom third on paying, um, yes. Yes. And, I mean, even that, you know, um, I was watching our, the panel last week and thinking uh, that, like, Michael Hash, for instance, right, 
the lawyer who ex- who got him exonerated was a UVA law student who worked for the law firm in Richmond, Matthew Bosher. He's a fantastic lawyer, and undoing a conviction, uh, you know, is infinitely harder than defending or, you know, or prosecuting a case to begin with. And if we had, if we could somehow incentivize people like Matthew Bosher to be trial lawyers within the system, you know, we'd have different outcomes for sure. Um, but but those people um, can go off to law firms and make much more, much better salaries, and there's no incentive for them to participate at trial. Yeah. There, there also seems to be some progress in some places on videotaping interviews slash mm-hmm. interrogations. Is, is that not moving forward here either um now that is and um the rules the you know the best practices and uh chief longo uh, who used to be our chief of police in charlottesville was uh big on insisting on this with just the camera goes on the minute somebody's in an interview room and it doesn't go off until the interview is completed um and that's just that's best for everyone right that's best for the police um, to defend against any accusations that they, you know, engaged in misconduct. And it helps defense lawyers to watch and see if their client was being led or coerced in 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 subtle ways or in, you know, stronger ways. So uh, recording is just always a great idea. And people do it in cars, too, you know, to have the minute a person is in a police car to turn on a recorder, also best practice. Yeah, the uh, there was one of the the men who spoke at the event who had been in prison, uh, falsely convicted and freed, uh, who described the the brutality of the experience of going to prison and the horror and the and the the apparent sadistic torture on the part of mm-hmm. the the prison guards and commented that you know nobody should have to go through that, um, you know, guilty or, or innocent. Uh, it's, it's a barbaric practice, on top of which you have the death penalty, and so that the threat of the death penalty and the threat of, uh, of prison were used uh, to get plea bargains in some of these cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, do we, do we need to reform this entire system in a larger way than just freeing some percentage of those who who go into it innocent? Well, you know, there's there's the Reed method, which is how most police officers are trained to do in interrogations. And, you know, it's the idea is that you minimize the crime and you um and you do all sorts of sort of manipulative, not sort of actually manipulative things to get people to to come clean about what they've done. And and part of our presumption is that it's okay for police to lie to people and and misrepresent the facts and the evidence um, because the goal is to get a confession in in any way. Right. And it's fascinating to me that we have this presumption that we have to lie to get the truth, right? Um, and there are plenty of places, n- not the United States, who don't presume that. And um, and I don't really understand. Um, most people, most people confess, right? Like most people, whether you Mirandize them or not, they confess. And um, I've seen 
perfectly lovely police officers do interviews where they misrepresent nothing and they get confessions, right? Um, so I, I don't understand why we have this presumption that that's okay. Um, and of course it breeds complete mistrust in certain communities who are constantly being harassed by police um, where, they, where they know that people can lie to them and will lie to them, right? They, the whole idea of having this cooperative police force and cooperative people in society, like, it can't be based on the knowledge that they can lie to you anytime they want. Yeah. One of the one of the powerful, I mean, they were all powerful, but one of the statements uh, of someone at this event last week was that from a, a middle-aged woman who was convicted of murder uh, in a case that was uh, a suicide. So there was not a crime, and they went, the police went searching for uh, a guilty party uh, in the in this non-existent crime, and and she commented that because of who she was and uh, and she had enough money to fight it, and she was not involved in any crime in any way, uh, she drew the lesson that this can happen to anybody, that anybody uh, can find themselves uh, charged with something they had nothing to do with, and in a matter of months, be in prison. Uh, and did, did, has that message, is that accurate, and has that reached people, or do people generally think, oh, this can only happen to certain other types? I think people absolutely uh, think it only happens to other people. And um, Beverly Monroe is a wonderful is a wonderful speaker and advocate for um, for the cause because she does bring home the uh, this can happen to your average you know middle class person like um, and she and she's just so lovely and um, and so unlikely. To most people, like you could just listen to her and talk to her and have a very hard time wrapping your head around her being engaged in violence, right? Um, and but you know, right next to her on stage is Thomas Hainsworth, right? And he was literally out. Uh, I think I think the story is that he went out to get uh, sweet potatoes at the market for dinner, yeah. and he was mistaken for a rapist, right? Um, so, and then, you know, Michael and Eric, Michael Hash and Eric Weekly were very young guys, and the crime, the murder of Thelma Scroggins happened. It goes unsolved for four years, and then a new sheriff is elected, and he runs on the platform that he's going to solve Thelma Scroggins' murder. And, and they get selected somehow, right? Someone was going to go down for that, and it just happened to be them. So... Um, I think when when more people see how, just how random it could be, like, you know, Messiah Johnson decides to go out for a drink and never ha- hasn't been home for 22 years. Like, yeah. you know, if you start if you start seeing it that way, you know, it does change the world. We, we've got literally uh, one minute left. How can people help? How can people learn more, get involved, and get the, the funding that's needed together? So um, I, I hate to have to agree with John Grisham, but money is the, is the ticket. And it's not everyone, the more people we can hire to help us, 
um, the more cases we can work on, the more students we can have in our clinics. Um, and it's money, it's money well spent because it would go directly to cases. So donating to us or to any Innocence Project is a worthy, is a worthy thing. Could not agree more. Deirdre Enright is the Director of Investigation at the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia, innocenceprojectuva.org. There are dozens of Innocence Projects and more are needed. Uh, Deirdre Enright, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. David, thank you for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.